On April 15, 1949, Pacifica Station KPFA 94.1 FM, Berkeley, California, went on the air, introducing public-sponsored community radio to America. Founded by Lewis Hill, a Quaker, World War II conscientious objector, and former commercial radio news broadcaster, his mission was to create a new kind of radio, supported by listeners, owing nothing to corporate sponsors, providing an outlet for creative expression, a forum for unpopular viewpoints, and a safe haven for artistic experiments with the radio medium. Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer, director of the Pacifica Radio Archives, and welcome to From the Vault, our weekly series that brings our history out of the vault and onto the radio. Today we're going to listen to as many voices as we can pulled from the archives to celebrate 60 years of broadcasting in the public sector. We begin with Dylan Thomas reading his poetry as broadcast on Pacifica Station KPFA in Berkeley, California on May 7, 1953. And I'd like to end with, do not go gentle into that good night. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end no dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay rage rage against the dying of the light and you my father there on the sad height curse bless me now with your fierce tears i pray do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. This is Lawrence Ferlinghetti, October 6, 1956. I'm indebted to Henry Miller for the title of this book, which I derive from a phrase of his in Into the Night Life. It's used out of context, but expresses the way I feel about these poems. Each poem should be its own Coney Island of the mind, its own circus of the soul. The long street, which is the street of the world, passes around the world, filled with all the people of the world, not to mention all the voices of all the people that ever existed, lovers and weepers, virgins and sleepers, young skirts and old squirts, good guys and old bastards, tea ladies and tea hounds, weird cats and square creeps, priests and pornographers, poets and stenographers, spaghetti salesmen and sandwichmen, milkmen and orators, dancers and washerwomen, Finnegans and Flanagans, Malloys and Malones, 
Bonemas, bankers, brittle housewives, sheathed in nylon snobberies, deserts of advertising men, coveys of nuns, herds of high school fillies, crowds of collegians, all talking and talking and walking around or hanging out windows to see what's doing out in the world where everything happens sooner or later, if it happens at all. And the long street, which is the longest street in all the world, but which isn't so long as it seems, passes on through all the cities and all the scenes, down every alley, up every boulevard, through every crossroads, through red lights and green lights, cities in sunlight, continents in rain, hungry Hong Kongs, untillable Tuscaloosas, Oaklands of the soul, Dublins of the imagination. And the long street rolls on around like an enormous choo-choo train chugging around the world with its bawling passengers and babies and picnic baskets and cats and dogs and all of them wondering just who is up in the cab ahead driving the train, if anybody the train which runs around the world like a world going round, all of them wondering just what is up, if anything, and some of them leaning out and peering ahead and trying to catch a look at the driver in his one-eye cab, trying to see him to glimpse his face to catch his eye as they whirl around a bend, but they never do, although once in a while it looks as if they're going to. And the street goes rocking on. The train goes bowling on with its windows reaching up. Its windows, the windows of all the buildings in all the streets of the world. Bowling along through the light of the world, through the night of the world. With lanterns at crossings, lost lights flashing, crowds at carnivals, nightwood circuses, horror houses and parliaments, forgotten fountains. Cellar doors and unfound doors, figures in lamplight, pale idols dancing as the world rocks on. But now we come to the lonely part of the street, the part of the street that goes around the lonely part of the world. And this is not the place that you change trains for the Brighton Beach Express. This is not the place that you do anything. This is the part of the world where nothing's doing, where no one's doing anything, where nobody's anywhere, nobody nowhere except yourself, not even a mirror to make you two, not a soul except your own, maybe, and even that, not there, maybe, or not yours, maybe, because you're what's called dead. You've reached your station. Descend. This is Pacifica founder Lewis Hill and Allen Ginsberg reading his poem, Howl. The recording of Allen Ginsberg's poem, How, which you're about to hear, was made at KPFA several months ago, before the censorship controversy about the poem had arisen. 
This recording was, in fact, broadcast by KPFA some months ago, very late one evening. For those who are especially curious about the details of the obscenity issue surrounding this poem, it should be mentioned that Mr. Ginsburg's reading, if compared with the printed text of the poem, which led to the arrest and censorship trial we'll be discussing later on, reveals that the poet himself deleted for radio broadcasting one or two passages which appear in the book, Howl and Other Poems. Moreover, for this particular broadcast, and specifically in consideration of the hour at which this broadcast occurs, KPFA has edited out two or three words or brief passages in the poem, simply as a matter of taste. I think you may feel assured, however, in what you're going to hear, that the full essence of what has provoked the San Francisco Police Department into the arrest of Mr. Ferlinghetti is still present. Mr. Ginsburg's poem is addressed to a friend of his who is confined in an insane asylum in the East. The book which Mr. Ferlinghetti was arrested for selling has an introduction by one of the principal American poets of the 20th century, William Carlos Williams. Here are the last two paragraphs of Mr. Williams's introduction. He says, It is the poet, Allen Ginsberg, who has gone in his own body through the horrifying experiences described from life in these pages. The wonder of the thing is not that he has survived, but that he, from the very depths, has found a fellow whom he can love, a love he celebrates without looking aside in these poems. Say what you will, he proves to us, in spite of the most debasing experiences that life can offer a man, the spirit of love survives to ennoble our lives if we have the wit and the courage and the faith and the art to persist. It is the belief in the art of poetry, Mr. Williams continues, that has gone hand in hand with this man into his Golgotha from that charnel house similar in every way to that of the Jews of the past war. But this is our own country, our own fondest purlieus. We are blind and live our blind lives out in blindness. Poets are damned, but they are not blind. They see with the eyes of the angels. This poet sees through and all around the horrors he partakes of in the very intimate details of his poem. He avoids nothing, but experiences it to the hilt. He contains it, claims it as his own, and, we believe, laughs at it, and has the time and effrontery to love a fellow of his choice and record that love in a well-made poem. Hold back the edges of your gowns, ladies. We are going through hell. Signed, William Carlos Williams. And now here is Allen Ginsberg reading the poem, How. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix. Angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient, shuddering connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night, who poverty 
and tatters and hollow-eyed and high, sat up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz, who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated, who passed through universities with radiant, cool eyes hallucinating Arkansas and Blake Light tragedy among the scholars of war, who were expelled from the academies for crazy and publishing obscene odes on the windows of their skull. Jessica Mitford, also known as Decca Chuhoft, in 1960 before the American release of her first book, Daughters and Rebels, interviewed by KPFA producer Sidney Roger. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Sidney Roger, and I have with me at the microphone uh, Mrs. Decca Trueheft. What we want to talk about uh, is the Mitfords, the Mitford family, and uh, the autobiography of Jessica Mitford, which happens to be you, Decca Trueheft. I'm saying all this now in this sort of roundabout fashion in order to set the scene very carefully that we're going to speak primarily about the autobiography of Jessica Mitford, who is Mrs. Decker Trueheft, who lives in Oakland, California. And uh, the autobiography is being published under the title Daughters and Rebels by Houghton Mifflin Company, and I think it's to come out, uh, it's supposed to be on the stands on June the 9th. Is That's that right? right, yes, June 9th. And it is uh, the American... It is the American edition of a book which uh, I have another copy of it here, the fourth printing already in England. It's, say this for me, Hans and Rebels? That's right, Hans and Rebels. Daughters and Rebels is the American version. Hans and Rebels is the English version. And Hans is means honorables? Well, it does in a way, although it really means hens. It's rather complicated. It's explained in the book. Well, and uh, I, I'll, I, re- I think it's easier not to go into it because it is so complicated. The Americans naturally felt that the title Hans and Rebels would be incomprehensible. What makes you honorable in uh, England? You're honorable enough here as far as I'm concerned because well, I'm crazy about you, Decker. <laughs> but why are you specifically with a capital H honorable when you get to England? Well, you see, you're automatically an honorable if your father is a peer, as mine was. Uh, let's see. That's the, how it happened. That's how it happened. You have a remarkable scrapbook of uh, book reviews, of reviews of the book, in this case, Hans and Rebels, and of course, as I say again, it's Daughters and Rebels here from England. It seems most unusual to have books reviewed with such enormous spreads. Here is a spread from the Sunday Express of uh, March 20th that takes up one, two, three, four, five columns with a great deal of artwork, with a picture of all the daughters. There's Nancy, the best-selling novelist, Deborah, now the Duchess of Devonshire, with Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, Unity, the uh, girl that says here, I am a Jew-hater. This is, uh, Unity was the one who became very involved with Hitler. And another daughter, uh, another sister, uh, Diana, who who is the wife of Sir Oswald Mosley. And then there is you, What a strange family, and no wonder that the Sunday Express says uh, so much happened to the Mitfords. Why is this book so exceptionally popular in England? Well, I think that uh, a good deal of the reason is because there's been a tremendous amount of publicity about my family from time to time through the years, and um, I think that is why they've played the book up 
so enormously in the papers. Um, I like to think that some of the reviewers like the book for itself, too, but I believe that, um, that that's the reason why such enormous coverage was given. I think it's a fascinating book in and of itself, but uh, I read here by Robert Pittman from the Sunday Express. It says, look carefully at the five aristocratic children in that family photograph. Can you detect any hints of destiny in their pretty faces? And by the way, you all are very pretty there, and still are, may I add. Uh, could you say which would turn communist or which would become Hitler's favorite or which would win fame as a writer or which would go to prison? Apparently, this isn't just a story of a group of uh, honorables. Uh, this was an unusual family. Why? Well, we did have an extraordinary upbringing. When I look back on it and have discussed it with cousins and contemporaries, people who came from more or less the same kinds of people that we did, I do think that our upbringing was really beat everything for um, uh, bizarreness and, and so forth. For example, none, none of us girls were allowed to go to school. Um, my brother, of course, went. My mother taught us herself at home. She taught reading, which became in very handy in later life, and it was yes. really almost all we ever learned. She also taught a little history. <clears throat> She taught us that um, the Americans had been expelled from the British Empire for causing trouble and other facts <laughs> that uh, stood us instead, you know. <laughs> but reading was really the only thing we were taught. Is it because, uh, despite the fact that Nancy Mitford, your sister, is one of the best-selling writers, uh, is this uh, limiting of, uh, of education to the girls because this is about the all you really need to get along in life? Very much the, the idea, I think. It's, it's an idea which stemmed from Victorian times, although I must say that when I was a girl, many, many were sent, being sent to school. In fact, it was the law. But, of course, my parents disregarded that sort of thing. Because they could, and they could well do it, because they yes. probably ran the school, didn't they? Or they were the, 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 they, I remember in the book you mentioned the fact that your father not only chose the, uh, uh, what would you call him, the reverend? Uh, the vicar. The vicar. Yes of the local church, but told him precisely what sermons to give and how long his sermons should be and what songs could be sung and what shouldn't be sung. He didn't like any of that foreign kind of singing, isn't that right? That's true. And furthermore, he used to um, time the poor chap with a stopwatch, and if he went over ten minutes, my father would be shaking his head like mad. Uh, I see your father, according to the uh, to the English edition, which uh, is published by whom? Was it Golance? Yes, uh, yes Victor by Victor Golance. The English edition says that your father was a man of fierce and irrational opinions, terrifying rages, a law unto himself. In a different way was your mother, Lady Redsdale, who brought up her children after a method all her own. But didn't these people, both your father and mother, represent something that was common to, uh, to all the peerage, or were they themselves an unusual group of people? I think they were somewhat eccentric. My father, we had a magnificent library at home, a really wonderful library compiled by grandfather. Um, but my father um, had only read one book in his life, uh, White Fang by Jack London. Oh, really? He always said it was such a damn good book, he didn't see the point of reading any others. <laughs> but, uh, of course, we, we used to read, you know, whatever there was in the library, which was an enormous amount. I mean, your grandfather was a writer, wasn't he? He was a, a writer of sorts. I don't know if he would qualify uh, really as a writer. He wrote his own autobiography. I suppose he, <laughs> I'm in the same boat. But um, runs of the family, uh, in other words. Yes. But he, um, he he was a literate sort of person. Apparently, of course, I don't remember him very well. The Earl of Birkenhead in the Daily Telegraph of the 25th of March says this shameless but most diverting book 
proves once again how vital eccentric relatives are to the writer of family novels. That's kind of cute, but you know, and this is a kind of a charming thing altogether, uh, at, at the same time, I would say that uh, this isn't just a uh, family novel in that sense, you know, that uh, there are family soap operas, uh, television, all that. I think it has a great deal more depth because you did, you did discuss the, the rise of, of, a, of a left wing among English youth that was quite significant in its time and showed itself quite courageously in Spain as a case in point. Yes, that's true. I, uh, when, when you've written a book yourself, it's very hard to evaluate to what extent it's um, a light or um, amusing book and to what extent it, it tries to do something further. Um, I, the critics have said, many of them, that it um, was evocative of the 30s in a general sort of way, that is, in the way that you speak of, I think. In other words, um, describing the... Um, uh, the uprising of movements of young people around um, pacifism, anti-fascism, the Labour Party, and this kind of thing. One other reason why I find your book very, very interesting to me, I, I would say this to you, Decca, that I find the, the book, uh, your autobiography, uh, more exciting to me around the latter uh, chapters, the the last four or five chapters from Spain onwards through, through the time you came to the United States and became aware of the nature of the New Deal, because this really uh, brought back a whole, well, to me, an enormously poignant and emotional and meaningful period of my own life and period of the lives of many, many people whom I hope will read Daughters and Rebels. Uh, Let's talk just a little bit about that long-forgotten place known as uh, Civil War Spain. Well, this, of course, was before the... Uh, bef uh, the Civil War part of my book is before we came to America. Yes. Uh, we, My first husband, Esmond Romley, who I've tried to describe and show in the book, and who was subsequently killed in the, in the Second World War... Um, was a volunteer in the international brigades, along with thousands and thousands from all countries. And uh, it was to Spain that he and I ran away. At the, uh, and, and we lived there. We lived in Bilbao for about a month, a part of Spain that was not particularly touched by the war at that time, except by tremendous privations and enormous air raids. But the fighting wasn't going on while we were there. And you were 19 and he was 18 at That's the time. That's right, yes. And um, we... Um, we went there with the intention of joining up with the... Uh, he rejoining and I joining the International Brigades. However, um, fate had it otherwise because the British Consul sort of got us out of there by a trick, in a way. Uh, we, the things that... Living in a town like that that was threatened with attack, as Bill Bio was, uh, waiting really in the shadow of the attack that was to come, was an extraordinary experience, something that... It was more like living in a story to me because it was so utterly unlike anything I'd ever experienced and the people were so unlike anybody I'd ever met. Now, this was the uh, incident in which the uh, Anthony Eden sent the uh, the destroyer 
To pick you up, wasn't it? That's right, and the Labour Party asked questions in the House of Commons about that destroyer, how come they were being used for this kind of purpose. But <laughs> pick up a, a member of the aristocracy. That's right. It was yes. to pick you up primarily or also uh, Romilly. Well, Romilly went along. It was really to pick me up and take me home, but instead of going home, we just went to France and... Uh, and stayed there. And he was a uh, he was a nephew, was he, of uh, Winston Churchill? Yes, yes. And uh, and then the Labour Party wanted to know why all this money. You know, this kind of reminds one of the time that that great myth, that great rumor, went the rounds that uh, that uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt sent a destroyer somewhere to pick up a dog named Falla. Oh, of <laughs> you course remember I remember that. that. In fact, that happened after the thing with us, and I, I think at the time I sort of noticed the parallel. <laughs> <laughs> parallel isn't entirely the same, of course, but that was a charming little dog, as I remember. Yes. Right. Then you came to the United States, and of course your adventures in the United States are absolutely hilarious. Uh, if you can imagine these two young people then, about 2021. 20, That's uh, right, uh, yeah. Well, you, you, the, the uh, civil war in Spain was well behind you then, wasn't it? The, the tragedy of the fall of Madrid and the, the end of the war was pretty much uh, depressing everybody. You also, partly because of your background and interest and anti-fascist uh, proclivities and the like, uh, you also found a great deal to be excited in, in the New Deal. And may I add that to those of you who are too young to remember, perhaps in some other program I will discuss the meaning of the New Deal. It was a tremendous American institution that moved a great many of us uh, into the feeling that something great had happened in America, and perhaps nothing quite like it has ever happened since, and yet I have a feeling, as Alexander Mickeljohn happened to say to me just the other day in front of the City Hall, the day after what the college uh, kids call the City Hall swim, uh, he said that he has a feeling that the 60s are going to be an awfully good decade and that the youth are going to speak up against a lot of bad things. Uh, but uh, today's youth might speak of the, uh, of the New Deal the way my 14-year-old son often says to me, in the olden days when you were my age, did you ride a horse and buggy? But the New Deal was a very exciting thing to you, wasn't it? I think the thing that made it so exciting, in a way, was to see... Um, an enormous number of young, enthusiastic people, some of them very little older than we were, and we were only 20 and 21 at the time, really feeling that they were going somewhere with a, with a program. I mean, this was the thing that was exciting about it. And uh, tremendously earnest and hard-working people from all over the country who were in Washington in those days in the various um, agencies of the New Deal, working their heads off for the... Um, uh, betterment of the poor farmers, for the TVA, for the thousand and one projects that went to make up that administration. And it was an awfully exciting thing, and especially coming from England, where um, the idea of a government, you know, a civil servant, uh, denotes a sort of a terrible, dried-up old thing in a, in a black suit, you know. I mean, you couldn't imagine the, the extraordinary uh, impression this made on us. Well, uh, did you, uh, coming from England have the feeling, as so many people do in, in other parts of the world, that America was a very rich and stable land, and were you quite surprised to find uh, what, the, what the Depression had wrought in this land of ours at the time you came here? Well, you know, the awful thing is, I hate to tell you this, but we knew terribly little about America before we came, except what we had seen in the movies. 
very, in those days particularly, there was very little travel between the two countries relatively. And um, I had a sort of vague impression of it from, um, you know, sort of gangsters and tremendous amounts of making love and drinking and so on that you sort of got from the movies. And that was about all. And so, so it was really coming here, you see, that made the enormous impression on us. And then you did find in the New Deal something that was, from your point of view, uh, could I use the term revolutionary? Is that too strong? Well, uh, I think it is too strong in one way. One thing that amazed us, too, was that in spite of all the zeal and, and, and so forth in connection with the New, new Deal, that, um, you see, we've been accustomed, as all Europeans are, living in a country where there's a huge socialist party. The Labour Party, no matter what its policies, its platform is one of socialism. And one of the things that puzzled us terrifically was the lack of any such party in America. Um, so or, or the lack of any dis real distinction between the Democrats and Republicans. I yes. want to say to you, Decker, that many of us are still just a little bit puzzled about exactly. this. Exactly. You see, it, it, it goes on still today. The, the form of political parties here is terribly different. Now, I wouldn't say we consider it revolutionary because um, revolutionary would have to us, would have denoted overthrowing the present system of capitalism. Yes, but of course the New Deal uh, was uh, quite the contrary. It was putting a f fairly firm uh, foundation, or at least doing a fairly adequate bolstering job of the system and uh, doing it in such a way that more people got some of the benefits exactly. of Exactly. That was the thing that impressed us so enormously. It was the absolute liberalism of the, of the whole idea and the uh, wonderful way that it seemed to be working. Uh, that there is a new resurgence among the young people. I think you you feel it and see it everywhere. Um, actually, I was pretty irritated with some of them about, you know, five to ten years ago. They seemed to be really a silent generation. And I do believe that uh, whatever the cause, uh, on every campus, not only around here, but what you read of what's going on in New York and so forth, really great things are happening among the young people. And I think that uh, we will have a better, we are in for better times. You are listening to From the Vault, this week celebrating Pacifica Radio's 60 years of community radio broadcasting with as many voices as we can pack into this program. For more information about the voices you've heard or the other 50,000 recordings that we have in our archive, please contact us at fromthevaultradio.org or call us at 1-800-735-0230. And we continue our program with a rare clip of Harvey Milk from 1978, interviewed by This Way Out's Greg Gordon. I'm Harvey Milk. I'm a supervisor in San Francisco. And I'm Greg Gordon for IMRU. Um, I'm, and I'm gay. <laughs> and so am I. And we're up in San Francisco in, uh, in Harvey's uh, office at Castro Camera. And uh, Harvey has graciously taken a few minutes out of his very busy schedule <laughs> to, uh, to talk to us about politics in San Francisco and how he got elected, the first openly gay person to be elected to public office in California history. Uh, I like to also talk about the politics in California rather than San Francisco. That's fine. Uh, because I don't think there's a delineation. There's you don't think that there's a difference in, in politics in San Francisco as opposed to, let's say, politics in Los Angeles? It's a matter of degree. There's no moat built around the city of San Francisco that separates us from the rest. Sometimes we wish there were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think what takes place in San Francisco, uh, for whatever reasons, can take place any place. And it's just a matter of understanding what it's all about. And uh, San Francisco, it's very interesting because of the fact that I'm gay, that becomes the big media event that sells the newspapers. But it's very important that uh, we realize that I was elected as a candidate who was gay rather than a gay candidate. 
did not run on a gay issue. Um, I ran on uh, of the 11 districts uh, we have uh, in San Francisco. The difference from LA is that uh, we are both county supervisors and city council people, one and the same. Uh, the city is divided into 11 districts. And uh, since we are city and county, it's one powerful, very powerful legislative group. You have to picture if you're L.A. City Council and your L.A. Board of Supervisors were one of the same. That's what we are. Uh, and we are an activist group rather than puppets of uh, the strong mayor or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or uh, a strong police chief. <laughs> or a strong police chief. Uh, we are very, very strong in this city. Uh, of the, in the 11 districts that were up for election this past year, uh, there were a total of something like 162 candidates altogether. Uh, of the 162 candidates, uh, all the, there were 11, uh, not even 11, there were about seven or eight who were incumbents who ran. Uh, six, I guess. And um, exit those out because they have a record of voting on issues. Uh, of all the other 150 some odd people, I was probably the most issue oriented person running. Probably had taken more strong definitive stands, not yes, I'm for that, no, I'm not for that, but why, and, and been in the battles than all the other candidates. Uh, running, probably more issue-oriented than some of the supervisors who ran for re-election. Uh, at least I'm more. So. And it's vital to know that it took four years, or five years, or whatever it was, to build up that kind of a reputation. Yes, yeah, because you had you had run for office in the past. It had nothing to do with running for office. Uh, the reason I ran for office because I was issue-oriented. You mm-hmm. know, people say, "Oh, you ran for office, name recognition." No. Um, in, in my particular district, we've had about five or six major district battles versus citywide problems. In every one, I was involved in them, on one side or the other. There wasn't one other candidate, there were 17 people running this district, there wasn't one other candidate who had been involved in every single district problem. Alan Watts may be the most recognizable voice heard on Pacifica Radio. Here's an excerpt of Alan from a 1960 recording from his home station KPFA in Berkeley, California. For the past six years, I have been involved in an experiment concerned with the introduction of the study of Asia into higher education. During this time... I have been brought into contact with almost every phase of the problem, not only of the study of Asia, but of the special problems of higher education as a whole. Everything from raising funds for vital and imaginative but unfamiliar ideas, through the appalling red tape of the academic system, to the intimate personal problems of the vocational counseling of students. But as a result, I have begun to have a vision of what the study of Asia might mean for the Western world, though I'm sorry to say that I have a good deal of difficulty in communicating this vision to others concerned with the formal area of Asian studies. At one end of the problem, I have been faced with those who cling to the utterly discredited notion that scholarly and intellectual pursuits 
are of no value unless they are rather platitudinously, obviously practical. And at the other, with the pundits and pedants, for whom the study of Asia means exhaustive research into the manufacture of Chinese writing ink between 1143 and 1252. I'm very happy and very grateful that I have been born at a time when the problems of human nature and destiny have been peculiarly exaggerated and thrown into sharp relief by an unprecedented development of human power. I feel that the peculiar direction of Western civilization has achieved something fantastically wonderful. It has given human beings the technical means of amplifying and exploiting almost every idiocy of which we are capable. And at the same time, of taking the most brutal, hard-boiled, and realistic view of man's place in the universe. And as we continue our program, we're going to be listening to voices of Naomi Klein, Carmen McRae, Angela Davis, Molly Ivins, Arundhati Roy, Christopher Isherwood, Tennessee Williams, Harvey Milk, John Trudell, Edward Said, Diane De Prima, and Frank Zappa. Well, I wonder if there's um, uh, anything recently that you've seen on C-SPAN you'd like to comment about. Uh, the other day I watched an interesting hearing on the A-12. Now, the A-12 is a type of aircraft, a, a stealth-type aircraft, <clears throat> that was running billions of dollars over budget and uh, way behind schedule, and Dick Cheney, the Secretary of Defense, canceled the contract in January. And what happened at the point of the uh, contract cancellation was the these two companies who were partners in building the plane, McDonnell Douglas and General Dynamics, they were sharing the, the government contract to build the plane. And they had been uh, paid, overpaid, and paid in advance uh, to the tune of about 1.35 something 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 billion dollars. And uh, when the program was canceled, they were obliged to return this money to the government. But instead of uh, giving the money back, they worked out some kind of a hanky-panky with uh, the governmental agency that is supposed to oversee these contracts, and they kind of let it slide. And uh, the net result was the biggest bailout in uh, government contracting history, except that it wasn't a bailout. It was a de facto bailout. And so they were holding a hearing on this matter. I guess about three hours worth of it went on C-SPAN the other day, and I taped it. It was quite interesting. The chairman of the committee was uh, Representative Conyers, and the thing that struck me about the proceedings was it was very bipartisan. The Republicans and the Democrats on the committee were equally irate that this event had occurred, and uh, it was probably the least partisan committee hearing that I viewed on there, just because uh, all of these guys seem to be equally outraged at what had happened. Naomi Klein. The roots of this idea, uh, this idea both of the shock doctrine and of the emergence of a new stage where the shocks are getting bigger, 
uh, which I'm calling disaster capitalism, um, really began when we were filming the take uh, in Argentina. And there's one moment that I, I always remember very vividly when we were, we were sh shooting uh, a scene for a film in a factory in Patagonia, in, in Neoquen, in southern Argentina, a beautiful part of the country. Uh, and um, there's a, a, a factory there called Zanon that is the largest uh, tile factory in Latin America. They make bathroom tiles, kitchen tiles. And, um, and when Argentina fell into an economic crisis, uh, many of the owners of, of the factories decided to just take the money and run, flee the country, get out while they could, uh, including the owners of this factory. And the workers at that factory decided, like many workers in Argentina in this period, to unfire themselves. Uh, and they just refused to be fired. They went back into their factory, uh, and they insisted on working. It was the reverse of a strike, uh, if you will. Um, they didn't withhold their labor. They insisted on giving it. And interestingly, one of their greatest challenge was not finding customers for the tiles, because in fact they had many customers for these tiles, uh, and they were able to sell them quite cheaply. The biggest problem was the police. The police were constantly showing up to try to evict them because they wanted to sell off the remaining machines and just milk the very last you know, bit of capital out of this factory, and uh, just sell it off for parts. So because of this constant threat um, from the state, the workers at Zanon were all equipped with a slingshot and a little arsenal of uh, marbles about this big um, that, were, that were actually part of the production process of making these tiles because you take the clay from the beautiful Patagonian desert um, and then you grind it up in these huge machines that, um, with these ceramic balls that you know, pound the, the clay the, uh, into the material to make the, the, the clay to make the, um, the tiles. Um, so they have a lot of these little balls around, and everybody got their little stash. They attached them to their work belts. And so we wanted to shoot a scene for the film where we would go up to the roof of the Zenon factory where uh, you're, there were just these incredible views because it was just this flat desert, beautiful red desert, um, as far as the eye could see. We wanted to go up there at sunset and shoot the workers um, practicing their slingshots. Um, magic hour, we call it in the film business. Um, so we went up there at magic hour, and we, sh we took some, some beautiful, beautiful shots um, of, of the slingshot practice. And that was the night that... Baghdad, that the bombing of Baghdad began. And I remember it so vividly because here we were with these medieval weapons looking out onto the horizon and just imagining it turning into another horizon, turning into the sky over Baghdad that we were all seeing on CNN, um, with where, which was lit up with a very different kind of arsenal. Uh, and on the one hand, it felt crazy to be here with slingshots uh, on the day that shock and awe was being unleashed on Iraq. Um, 
But on the other hand, we also felt like there was nowhere we'd rather be uh, because when that kind of destruction finished um, and failed, there would have to be alternatives. And we felt so strongly that what we were witnessing in this moment uh, was an example of the kind of alternative, the kind of uh, different world uh, that, that increasingly people would turn to. Molly Ivins. What I wanted to preach to you a little bit about, okay, I'm going to watch my time here, just like those guys in the debates, um, is what I think is a real problem for the left in this country. Um, and I am just as serious as a stroke about this. You people need to work harder at having fun. You do not have enough fun. You are fun challenged. Um, and the reason you got to have fun is because it's that great philosopher Jimmy Buffett says, if we couldn't laugh, we would all go insane. Uh, and what ha the reason you have to look for ways to make politics fun is not only that it's your life, uh, but also because it's a better way to live, it's better for your health, and it will keep you from becoming disgusted, cynical, bitter, and burned out. Uh, there is no use at all in uh, thinking, well, we'll have fun after we win. Wrong approach. As a Texas liberal, I would like to explain to y'all, not a good plan. Uh, now, in Texas, where we are pretty darn good at this, we like to think, um, I think the key ingredients I thought about this a fair amount are imagination and beer. <laughs> Recommend it, or whatever California variant you might prefer. Um, Tennessee Williams. Mr. Williams, in your memoirs, you talk about, you describe your meeting with uh, Mr. Brando. I wonder if you could recollect that for us. Oh, I described them exactly as they were. <laughs> <laughs> if you read the memoirs, why, uh, uh, that's exactly how it took place. He was sent up by uh, Edith Kazan uh, found him, uh, you know. I hadn't heard of him even, and uh, he was sent up to, uh, I was uh, spending some time on the Cape, and he sent him up there, and, uh, well, he arrived several days after I was expecting him, and I had uh, given up on him ever appearing, but he did finally arrive with this very pretty young chick, and, uh, uh we were living in desperate circumstances. Uh, uh, the uh, Texas uh, producer director, Margot Jones, was there, and uh, a colleague of hers, Joanna Albus, and all our lights had gone out, and the plumbing had um, broken down. And I, that's all described memoirs, but... Uh, he repaired everything, and then he just sat down quietly and read. And after a few moments, Margot let out this uh, hoop of delight and got on the phone and said, this man is the greatest actor I've ever heard, even in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> There's one thing that puzzles me about this Tennessee memoirs. It's yeah. the same thing, but 
I remember when I was with you in Provincetown in 1944 that Marlon Brando was there. And that had well, Harold, Harold, <laughs> and that you have a unique memory. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder how Mr. Brandon would take to some of your recollections. Well, uh, I already know, but... Uh, I suspect your, his lawyers might inform you. <laughs> John Trudell. I know the GSA and the Public Health Department made the statement one time that they were going to have to rip us off the island because of improper sanitation facilities. But if they're going to take us off the island out there for that, then I think they're going to have to improve conditions on the reservations because although we have no central heating and we haven't got any steady electricity here, water is a problem. When the Army stops giving us water, then we're going to run into some hassles. But even with all these problems, it's the same as being on the reservation. I've had people say that, well really courageous for you guys, you people to be doing this but we've all been through it before just a different place it's the same game just has a different name now uh, Alcatraz is nothing but a rock to many people but it's our rock and we can develop it and we can make things work for the Indian people so it's more than just a rock to us it's it's uh, maybe a stepping stone to a better future. Edward Said. Goethe was, I believe, the first great modern European to attempt some kind of artistic synthesis and involvement between what in those days were called the Orient and Europe. His accomplishment was the magnificent Diwan itself, as well as for our purposes, the use of art, so to speak, to create an imaginative reordering of polarities, differences, and opposition on the basis not of politics, but of affinities, spiritual generosity, and aesthetic self-renewal. We also exposed our students to Buchenwald, one of the most notorious of the Nazi death camps, which lies only about six kilometers outside Weimar, thus serving us to point out how very close together the great heights of culture can easily coexist with the deepest and basest evil. The point of all this is that a new paradigm emerged for us and our students, who were, it should go without saying, from differing and sometimes jarringly antagonistic backgrounds and whose interests, ambitions, histories, and commitments during the three weeks were suspended in the interest of music. Music, I don't need to insist on this too much, is a silent art. What and how it articulates in sound are totally independent of the world of ideas, concepts, and words themselves yet also dependent on them in that those very things suspended by music's enactment are paradoxically the very worldly circumstances that bring musicians together. But that opposition and symbiosis between music and the world, so to speak, proved amazingly fertile. We did another summer in Weimar the next year, 2000. In 2001, we went to Chicago. And last year, and for the next few years, our East-West Divan has been adopted by the Andalusian government as well as a private foundation of three cultures, Seville has become our new home. From Weimar to Seville, with its history of Islamic and Jewish and Christian um, cultural interaction, is, I believe, a totally different trajectory and paradigm for Arabs and Israelis. 
There's no political program to what we do, since everything is subordinated to music, which for three weeks possesses everyone, in addition, of course, to the practical matter of living and working together. The point of telling you the story is to suggest how, despite the incredibly polarized, antagonistic, and discordant world in which we live, there's always the possibility of another alternative type of social model. Barenboim is no ordinary Israeli, of course, and I like to think perhaps I'm not an ordinary Palestinian either. But in our work and commitment to our friendship and to music making and discussion, and a disruption of the rigid lines that have circumscribed and organized our public as well as private lives, we go on. If it weren't for the rich emblematic status of Palestine and Israel, however, none of this would have been possible since it is because the complex issue itself, whose core, from my, my point of view, is the struggle for Palestinian human rights in a land sanctified by the three monotheistic religions, is so fertile with possibilities, ones that reach into culture, history, politics, and personal relations, that we have been able to do what we do. Diane de Prima. There are those of us who are so desperate behind the exploitation and disintegration that is now going forward on planet Earth that we think and talk in terms of an invader, a race from a larger orb whose appetites so exceed the natural productivity of our little globe that we are aware they can only be here to strip the planet of its resources like locusts and move on. After all, we argue, all evidence points to the fact that the planetary ecology was undisturbed until 20 or 30,000 years ago. So it is not simply man who is the disturbing factor, for man has been here, some say, for 750,000 years, some say for 1,750,000 years. You pick it. Is it one form of man, or as Leroy would have it, the white man is the devil? But that is too simple and doesn't work either. The Both Malcolm X and the Panthers have to admit that not all white men are the devil, but only some. Who? It becomes the problem of naming names. Most important revolutionary activity, fingering the man. To call it imperialism reeks of glibness. Who and why? How long has this revolution been going on? How long do you see it? For sure, I know it goes back to the Reformation, the peasant uprisings in Germany at the time of Paracelsus. Nothing religious about the Reformation, man. It was simply a class battle, Catholic Church plus aristocracy versus the serfs. If they could get out from under, they could get out from under. If they could get to God direct without priest, they stood that much better chance of running their own lives. 700,000 German peasants killed in one year under the banner of the Bundschuh, the wooden shoe of the peasantry. How far back do you take it? To Spartacus? To Babylonia? 300% interest a year there during its last days, and if you defaulted on payment, your family as well as your goods were seized and sold. What slave uprisings in Greece? In Egypt? Who writes the history books, and will they tell us about it? History is a nightmare from which I am trying to awake, said Joyce. A dream is what you make it. Who writes the history books? How do we step out of history? Do you want to step out of history? I had better make it clear in front that I do. Christopher Isherwood. I also uh, would like to make an overall remark right here and now, and that is that I challenge the assumption that any kind of material, whatever, or any kind of characters, whatever, are necessarily suitable or unsuitable for literature. 
It seems to me that this is something which depends entirely on the writer. What is suitable literature? What is suitable material for the literature which I'm going to write? Material that I know about, material that I can be passionate about, material that I can relate to the surrounding scene, to the rest of the cultural picture of my time or of the time about which I am writing. There seems to be to be really no other criterion. And I do not believe that there is the most obscure, unemployed homosexual in the remotest packing house shanty who nevertheless doesn't have some relation to the cultural picture as a whole. Because, of course, what uh, this writer is suggesting uh, is that certain subjects are absolutely unsuitable because they are not only unworthy, but they are somehow or other unsuitable because they are out of the main stream of life. This is nonsense. Everything that is in nature is natural. And that does it for this week's edition of From the Vault, marking the 60th anniversary of Pacifica Radio. We'd like to take a moment to thank the stations that air this series, Pacifica Stations KPFT in Houston, WPFW in Washington, D.C., KPFK here in Los Angeles, and our affiliate stations, KGNU Boulder, Denver, Colorado, KSER Everett and Snohomish County, Washington, KSVR Skagit Valley College, Mount Vernon, Washington, KUGS Bellingham, Washington, KUOI Moscow, Idaho, KUSP Santa Cruz, California, KVNF Paonia, Colorado, KWMD Anchorage, Alaska, KYGTLP Idaho Springs, Colorado, KZYX Mendocino County, California, WESU on the Wesleyan University campus, Middleton, Connecticut, WOMR Provincetown, Massachusetts, WORT in Madison, Wisconsin, WVJWLP Bendwood, West Virginia, and our new friends at Chaos Radio on the campus of Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. Thanks to Darby, Rachel, Ryan, Cameron, and Gina for hosting us at your pad. It was really groovy there in Olympia. The series is produced by Brian DeShazer and Mark Torres, an executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and Brian DeShazer. From the Vault is presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, which is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts and grants from the Grammy Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the University of California Berkeley's Moffett Library, the Pacifica Foundation, and from contributions from Pacifica Station listeners. This program was written by Mark Torres and Brian DeShazer. Our theme music is by Kevin Drum Holiday. I'm Brian DeShazer, and thanks for listening. <laughs> ¶¶